So I'm a big fan of closure. Like I like things to be all wrapped up in, in a night nice package with a bow on it. Uh, and, and because of this reason, uh, I generally wait to watch a TV show or like a movie trilogy until the whole thing is done and it's like out on Netflix. That way, once I start watching one episode, I can just keep watching them and I can watch them all the way through. Uh, there's no like, it, you know, if the season ends on a cliffhanger, it's no big deal. I just bring up the next episode on Netflix, and I, I know, you know, the cliffhanger is over. I don't like those cliffhangers. And one of the worst things to me, like one of the biggest entertainment sins as far as I'm concerned, is if you end a series or you end a movie on a cliffhanger and you just leave it at that. I hate that. It makes me instantly angry, like my blood starts to boil. If you saw the movie Inception, it did that. Like, I really liked the movie Inception right up until the very end. I'm sitting there, I'm watching it. If you don't know, it's about kind of like these, these people who are able to operate in other people's dreams. Uh, and at some point, you can start to lose whether you're in a dream or you're in reality. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is the main character, and one of his whole goals through the, this entire movie is to be reunited with his children. He keeps having dreams where he sees his children, but he doesn't see their face. He sees them out in a yard playing, and you, the whole movie, you're like, man, I hope he's reunited with his kids. I hope he gets to be there. Now, one of the ways they keep track of whether they're in a dream or in a real world is they carry an item with them that they only know about, and for Leonardo DiCaprio, it's this top, and he spins it. And if he's in a dream, it will just spin perpetually. And so he knows if it just keeps spinning, he's in the dream world. Whereas if he spins it and it falls over, he knows he's in the real world. And so at the end scene, Leonardo DiCaprio's character sees his kids. It's just like the dream he's been having, but his kids' faces turn to him, and he sees them. And just as he's getting ready to go towards them, he spins his top. And then instead of waiting for it to fall, he walks off to be with his kids. But the movie zooms in on that top. And it zooms in on the top, and it's spinning, and it's spinning, and it just starts to wobble a little bit, and then it cuts to black. And that's the end of the movie. And I was like, what? Like, uh, I just sat here for over two hours, and you're going to leave me with, like, total uncertainty? Like, maybe it wobbled, maybe it was going to fall, or maybe it was just going to keep spinning. I don't know. And I was really angry, and I'm still kind of angry, obviously. Here's your yelling, Becca. I'm already yelling in the sermon. Uh, I wasn't really sure if, you know, that uncertainty, that lack of closure really bothered me. So much so that even though I own the movie, I watched it once in the last eight years. Because it just, ah, drives me nuts. But that's the way life is sometimes. We don't always get closure in life. And in fact, when it comes time for us to die, when it comes to the end of our lives, we're going to have to deal with the fact that we don't have closure for everything. We're not going to get to see the end of everything. And so what does it look like uh, for us to come to the end of our lives, to face that uncertainty, and yet still have complete closure and still have complete faith and complete confidence? And today we're going to look at Joseph as we look at that. We're going to be reading first out of Hebrews eleven twenty-two. 
we've uh, started this sermon series. Actually, we're quite, well, we've started, we're, we're a long way through this sermon series. Um, but as we've been going through it, we've been seeing how people acted in faith in their lives and the great things that happened that God did through them. And so in Hebrews eleven we're going to pick up here with Joseph just at the end of his life. It says, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. So for that to make sense, we're going to need some background uh, as to what's going on. Now, the writer of Hebrews is writing to, well, a bunch of Hebrews, so they, they knew immediately what was being referred to here. But Joseph was the great-grandson of Abraham. Uh, I preached on Abraham a few weeks back. Abraham was a man of faith. And Abraham lived worshiping God and glorifying God. And what happened was God came and spoke to Abraham and that he was going to bless Abraham and establish a covenant with Abraham. And not just with Abraham, but with his offspring as well. And he said, I will be their God. In other words, I, there is going to be a close relationship with these people, with you, Abraham, and with your offspring. And your offspring are going to be like the stars in the sky. There's going to be so many of them. And part of that covenant, uh, God said, I'm going to give to you and your offspring the land of Canaan. So there is this promised land that they are given. And for a while, they are able to dwell in it. But God also tells Abraham that there's going to be a period where your descendants are going to be driven out of that land. And they're going to be held in a foreign land. But I will come to them again and I will bring them back to the land I have promised you. Well, the events that lead to Abraham's descendants being out of the promised land, being forced to leave, are going to occur during Joseph's lifetime. Joseph lives a very, uh, in a very uncertain time for his family, for the people of God. He is, as I said, he's his great-grandson. So you had Abraham, then you had Isaac, then you had Jacob. Jacob is called Israel. So if you're wondering where the term of the nation of Israel comes from, it's from Jacob. Jacob's name becomes Israel. And Israel has 12 sons. So Joseph is not just one son of Jacob. He is one of 12, and he's actually the 11th son of, of uh, Jacob. And he's, he's Jacob's favorite. So Jacob had many character flaws if you look at his life. But one of them is he definitely favors one of his kids over all the other ones. Uh, the reason for that being is he has, uh, ja uh, Jacob has Joseph in his older age. Uh, if you know the story, Jacob's wife, Rebecca, was his favorite wife. So again, he played favorites a lot. Uh, but they did not conceive kids until later in life, and, and the first child they have is Joseph. And so Jacob just uh, favors him terribly, despite the fact that he's got 11 other sons and at least one daughter. Jacob favors Joseph. And, uh, you know, some of you probably have siblings. Maybe you think they're the favorite. Maybe you know you were the favorite. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> but this happens. Uh, and, of course, uh, you know, one of the biggest ways we see this is Joseph is given this coat of many colors, this robe of many colors by his father. So all his 11 brothers, I'm imagining, are clothed in, in various shades of brown and tan. You know, they're probably not real stylish. 
And here comes dad, and he's got this awesome colorful robe, and he gives it to Joseph. He's like, I don't know if you remember those starter jackets when they came out in the 90s. Those were the jackets to have, man. But it was like everybody else. You know, imagine having all your siblings, and you're in just your normal black winter coat. And here comes dad with one of those Patriot starter jackets. And he gives it to one, but he doesn't give it to everybody else. You're going to go, right? It's going to breed contempt. So, of course, that's what happens with Joseph's 11 other brothers. It breeds contempt. They don't like Joseph. And so they start plotting, right? You wait till the parents' back is turned, and that's when you get the favorite, right? You, you wait till there's no, no witnesses. Well, they're all out in a field, and they start plotting. And the, the plot starts, we're going to murder this guy. We are so sick of him. He's arrogant, too. He's been obviously gifted by God, and he lords it over his brothers. He, he was gifted with the uh, interpretation of prophetic dreams, and he has prophetic dreams. And in one of these dreams, he, he, it's a, he realizes that his brothers are all going to be serving him at one point, even though he's the 11th along the lines, and he just, he, rub, he kind of rubs it in their face. So the brothers are like, we're getting rid of this guy. We're going to murder him. We're going to tell dad a wild animal got him or something, but we are getting rid of him. The oldest brother talks him out of it, says, no, 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 why don't we throw him in a pit instead? Like, we'll just do that, all right? Let's not murder the guy. So they throw him in this pit, and uh, then they decide, wait a minute, you know what we could do with them? that would really benefit us is we could sell him for money. We could sell him as a slave. And this is going to start a pattern in Joseph's life where Joseph is on top, and then Joseph is at the bottom. And then Joseph is at the top, and then Joseph is at the bottom again. And so he went from being the favorite to son, the being the favorite son, to now he's in a pit, and he's getting sold as a slave to some traders. And these, these spice traders go down to Egypt... And they sell Joseph again. They sell him to a man named Potiphar. Potiphar was the captain of the palace guard for Pharaoh. So Potiphar has money. He's got a good life. He's got a big estate. And Potiphar realizes that there's something special about Joseph. The the Lord blesses what Joseph does. Joseph does things and they prosper. And so he has Joseph start to run his household. He puts Joseph in charge of everything. And the Bible tells us, Joseph is doing such a good job that Potiphar literally has nothing to worry about. He wakes up, he goes to work, he doesn't have to worry about where the money is, where it's coming from, where it's going, nothing. So Joseph is in charge of this great estate. He has found favor in his master's eyes. God has used him to build this up. He's coming back up. Now Joseph also had another thing going for him. Joseph was handsome. Joseph was a good-looking dude, and he was successful. As you can imagine, that starts to attract women. And in fact, it starts to attract Potiphar's wife. And Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him, tries to get Joseph to go into an affair with him. But Joseph is faithful. He, he would not dishonor God that way. And so he doesn't do it. He, compl- he continually just rebuffs her efforts. And finally, she gets fed up with it. And uh, she grabs his coat off him. And then she tells Potiphar that he tried to rape her. And Potiphar believes his wife and has Joseph thrown in prison. So there we are. Joseph was up. Even though he was a slave, things were looking good for him. But man, it's taken all away from him. And he's back at the bottom again. He's in prison. While he's in prison, 
God is still using him. God is still blessing him. God is still working things out for his good. There's two prisoners who have dreams, and they, they know there's something special about these dreams, and they're bothering them, and Joseph interprets them, and he tells one of the guys, look, he, you were working in Pharaoh's household. You're going to be restored in three days' time to Pharaoh's household. But the other guy who's in prison, he says, in three days' time, your dream means that Pharaoh's going to hang you. And so sure enough, three days pass, Pharaoh has the one man hanged, and the other man is returned to his service in the palace of Pharaoh. And as he's leaving, Joseph says, remember me to Pharaoh when you get there. And so there's a little glimmer of hope, right? He should have Pharaoh's ear, but the servant gets there, and he forgets to remember Joseph. And Joseph sits in prison for two years on a false accusation. But while he's there, the the guard or the the man who's in charge of the prison again recognizes that God is blessing Joseph's life and he ends up putting Joseph in charge of all the prisoners and it makes his life easy again he has he is the Bible says he has nothing to worry about Joseph is taking care of all the affairs in this prison and uh, like I said two years go by and now Pharaoh starts having dreams that are bothering him and no one can interpret them. He's like, I, 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 he's just flustered. And all of a sudden, that cupbearer, the servant who had knew about Joseph, remembers him. He says, oh, hey, wait. There's a Hebrew in your prison who can interpret dreams. He interpreted mine. He can interpret yours. And so they called Joseph. And these dreams that Pharaoh were, was having was, he dreamed that there were these seven really plump cows, like the cows that are ready for slaughter, and you're going to have a nice juicy steak from them. But then these seven cows come along that are just, they're, they're horribly skinny. They look like they're on death's doorstep. And these seven cows devour the seven healthy cows. And then he has a dream about seven heads of grain that look like a head of grain should. They're, the grains are plump. They're mo- you know, there's moisture there. They look good. And then there's these seven heads of grain that come along that are dried and withered. And they consume the seven healthy heads of grain. And Joseph says, They might have been two different dreams, but they're really one and the same. So what's going to happen, there's going to be seven really good years. There are seven years coming up that are going to be prosperous like Egypt and the world has never seen. But then there's going to be seven years of famine afterwards. Pharaoh realizes this is the truth. He realizes that God's anointing is on Joseph. And so he puts Joseph in charge of all of Egypt. Joseph only has to answer to Pharaoh at this point in life. And for the next seven years, Joseph runs Egypt. He's preparing it for that famine coming up. He has storehouses built. He has the grain collected. He makes Pharaoh a ton of money and acquires more land for Pharaoh. Joseph is living the high life again. He's back at the top. And those seven years of, of, of plenty come to an end. And the seven years of um, famine start. Now Joseph's uh, brothers and his family are all still in the land that God had promised them. But when the famine hits, they start running out of food a couple years in. And they've got to come to Joseph. But they don't know it's Joseph. They just know Egypt has a lot of food. And so they make the trip, and they're standing before Joseph, and not one of them recognizes him. Not that you can really blame him. Remember, it's been decades 
It, it's, been, or it's been decades at this point. And also, they sold him as a slave to some spice traders. They're not expecting him to be the second in command of Egypt. And so they don't recognize him. And so Joseph has a little fun with them, plays some games with them, because he wants to find out their intentions, what their life is like. Are all his brothers okay? Is his father alive? But eventually, Joseph loses control, and he has to reveal himself to his brothers. And so he does. And he's reunited with his father. And as you can imagine, his father is grateful to see him because he thought he was long dead. But his brothers are afraid, right? I mean, the second most powerful man that, they, that you can possibly imagine is the man they, they betrayed, they sold out. And they stand before him in fear and trembling. But Joseph says something amazing to them. He says, he, says, he tells them not to have fear. He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. So don't worry. I will take care of you, and I will take care of your little ones. Joseph recognized that through all the highs and lows of his life, that God was in it. God was taking care of him. God was providing for him. God was still blessing him. Joseph lived a life of faith in that manner, and it shows as he forgives his brothers. He said, I recognize that God was using this to preserve our people, that he was using it to take care of this people, his people, in a special way, his, the people he had made a covenant with, our family. I recognize that's what God was doing that whole time. And so we see that Joseph lived a life of faith. And I bring up Joseph's life, even though we're talking about Joseph's death, because his life affects how he dies. He lives a life of faith and is therefore going to be faithful as he faces death, the biggest uncertainty of life. <clears throat> we're going to turn now to Genesis chapter 50. It's the last chapter in Genesis, and we're actually going to read the last three verses. And we're going to do that um, because it's when Joseph is at his end. We, we read a little, this is what we read first in Hebrews 11, but this is it in its origin. Joseph's, um, sorry, and Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land and to the the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So there's Joseph, the end of his life, in the face of death. Not in the land that was promised to his family, but in a foreign land, and yet still just showing that faith. He meets death with faith. He's still sure of God's promises at the end of this, even though he's dying in the, not his land, not the land that was promised, but in a foreign land. It shows, to me, um, sorry, to me what it shows is that Joseph understood the whole time that it has been God who has been in control. That it has been God who has been working everything for 
his purpose. And Joseph isn't panicking that at the end of his life, God's purposes are suddenly going to stop. Or that God is suddenly going to stop taking care of the family, uh, the, the people that he promised he would take care of, that he made a covenant with. Joseph is totally sure that God will continue to do exactly what he said he was going to do. That he will fulfill the promise to bring them out of that land and back to the land of Canaan. And so he dies accordingly, giving instructions accordingly. You know, one of the biggest worries that people have as they're dying is what's going to happen to their family. What's going to happen to those around them after they are gone? I've, I've met with people as they're dying in this state, where they view themselves that they were the linchpin that held everything together. They held that family together, and without them, they worry that that family is going to fall apart, that it'll be in disarray. And so you hear things like, who's going to make sure that if my wife falls and gets hurt, she gets to the doctor? Or who is going to make sure my husband remembers to take all his medication and pay the bills? Who will take care of my children, my grandchildren, so on and so forth? If they started a business, I've heard them, I'm worried about what's going to happen to that? What's going to happen to all this? And it's, it's a, a sad thing to watch because as their time is limited and this last time they have with their family, instead of it being spent enjoying each other's company and enjoying the lives they had together, it's filled with worry and it's filled with despair. And it's not pleasant. On the other hand, I've had the joy of being around people who knew the end was coming, who were near, and yet they had total confidence in what God was doing. They had total confidence that what God had started in the lives of their family would continue on after they were gone. I knew a pastor, uh, I got to spend some time with him in the last few months of his life, who met death this way. As we were talking about his life and reviewing everything that had happened, he was sad, don't get me wrong. He knew that there was going to be a separation for a time from his family, that it would cause them sorrow, that things would be somewhat difficult without him. That sadness was there, but it wasn't a despair. It wasn't a fear. It was totally different. He he had started this church in Los Angeles, and uh, he, he said that, you know, while God used me, it was God doing the work in these people's lives. He said, well, I was the one out there you know, sowing the seeds of the gospel, were his words. He said it was God that caused those seeds to grow into faith. He said, yes, I've discipled people, some for 20 and 30 years, and I've watched them mature and be sanctified. But he said the whole time, it was God who was doing that. Yes, he used me, but it was God that caused that growth it was God who did all of that. And so I'm confident that it will continue to be God who does it after I'm gone. He wasn't worried about that. He had faith that God would continue to do what he had started. I'm going to tell you, that's how we should want to go out. Because he was able to be calm and to enjoy his time that he had left with his family and with his church was able to enjoy that and it was a totally different feeling than when I've been with the people who are on the other side of that coin that's what we should aspire to when our time comes 
that when we are looking at death, when we know God is getting ready to call us home, that we're able to die in a state of faith where we know that God will continue on in the lives of those around us. He will continue to protect them. He will continue to provide for them. He will continue to cause them to grow in their faith. We're all in different stages of life here, obviously. Some of us, this is going to be maybe blunt, a little cold. Some of us are closer to that moment than others, right? But that doesn't mean that we should be living as though it's never going to happen. It will all come sooner or later. For all of us, it's the one thing, barring Jesus' return, that we can't escape. We will all die. And so the question isn't whether we're going to die or not, but it's how are we going to face death when it comes. And I want to tell you, if you want to face death like that, if you want to face death where you are in, a, in a, a, an area of faith and not an area of fear, then you really should start living that life of faith now. It's, not, it's, it's kind of like the old coach's adage, you, you play how you practice, right? So like if you were, you know, if you're, you're swinging at pitches you shouldn't be swinging at in practice, chances are you're going to be still swinging at those pitches in a game. Or if you're missing a defensive assignment in practice, you're most likely going to be missing those defensive assignments in the game as well. Well, if you're living your life now worrying about everything that's going on and you don't have faith that God is in control and that God is working in it, and if you don't have that faith now, how do you expect to have that faith at the end of your life? It's something we should be cultivating now, a life of faith now, where we trust God fully now, so that when we do come to the end, we trust God fully then as well. And so how do we do that? What does it look like for us to live lives of faith now? Well, for one, it starts with where is your faith for your salvation? That's the stepping point, the starting point of faith. If your faith is not in Jesus and his death and his resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins and for your salvation, then you're on shaky ground to start with. You're on uncertain ground to start with. But if that's where your faith is for your salvation then you're on solid ground. Because your faith is in what Jesus has done, not in what you have done. Your faith is in that Jesus lived the perfect life, not that you had to live the perfect life. Your faith is in Jesus' blood paid for your sins, and it will not have to be your own blood. You will not have to be separated from God because Jesus was separated from God for you on the cross. That's where we start a life of faith. A life of faith can start nowhere else. It has to start there. But then we grow in our faith, and it looks like having faith that God is working in our lives even in the toughest of times, even when we're at the bottom. There are people who are here in this church today who I have talked to who said, God had to bring me to rock bottom first. I had to hit there or I never would have come to church. I never would have believed in Jesus. said I was too prideful. I had no need for church. I had no need for that weakness. I had no need for that foolishness until God brought me to the bottom. And when I hit rock bottom, I realized that I'd been wrong all that time. 
and that I needed God, that I needed Jesus, that I needed to be in a church. And so here I am today. That is God working through things while you're at the bottom. We need to have faith that God does that. He works all things for our good, for the good of those who love Him, even when we're down in the valleys. But we also need to practice having a life of faith when we're way at the top. That we remember that it is God who has blessed us, that it is God who has has allowed us to have those things. The house, the car, the job, whatever it is. And we need to remain in an attitude of faith then and thankfulness then, that it is God who has provided for us to be up there and in that situation, and that He has done that for a purpose as well. So we should be living these lives, whether we're low or high or somewhere in the middle, where we have faith that God is in control of all that is going on in our lives. So that when we come to the end, we are still just as certain even though we're about to die, that God is still in control. And that's true even if we're not going to get to see all the things we want to see at the end of our life. Maybe it's a child's wedding. Maybe it's grandchildren. But there will be things at the end of our life where it's open-ended. But that doesn't mean that we have to die without closure. We can still die with that closure of knowing that God is in control and He will take care of our loved ones and He will fulfill His promises long after we are gone. And the the big thing is, if we come to our time to die and we die, it will be without God fulfilling one of His promises. That is the promise that Jesus is going to return. Jesus died, He rose again, He went to heaven, but He said, I'm coming back. And when he comes back, it's to make all things new. He said he he will wipe away every tear, that sorrow will be gone, death will be done away with. But if we're sitting there on death's doorstep, we will realize that that has not yet come to completion. But even in that moment, we can sit there and say, God is faithful to do what he said he is going to do. Jesus is going to come back. And we can, like Joseph, give instructions in accordance with that. We can encourage our family to continue on in their faith. That this doesn't end it. That God is still good. That God is still looking out for them. That God is still going to provide for them. We can encourage them in that. We can encourage our family members who do not have faith that just because I'm dying does not mean God's promises aren't true and aren't fulfilled. No, they are And he proved that when he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross. We can share the gospel with them then. And we can encourage them as we're sitting there that death is not the end. Especially with our family and our friends who are believers. That this will not be the last time that we see each other. Surely there's going to be a separation and it's okay to mourn. But the good news is, is Jesus is coming back. And because of that, we will get to spend eternity with each other. But more importantly, we'll get to spend eternity with God, glorifying Him, worshiping Him. It affects how you die when you have faith like that. And let, us, let that be our goal. To die in a state of faith. That God will do everything He said He is going to do. That it's not dependent on us, thankfully. That He is 
faithful no matter what to fulfill his promises. Let that encourage us and encourage, I'm sorry, let that encourage us so that when we come to the end, we can encourage those around us to have faith like that. Let's pray.